Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show in which we feature fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. My name is Shereen Patek and I'm the managing editor of Glossy. This week's guest, Stacey Brockman, co-founder of Metier, which does branding and creative for some of the world's biggest luxury brands. Welcome to the show, Stacey. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. We're excited to have you. I want to start with something that I know is a topic very close to your heart. Um, I want to talk about influencer marketing. I feel like we're at this point in, especially in the fashion world, where a lot of brands seem to be waking up to the realities of what it really means to be, you know, have an quote unquote influencer marketing strategy. What are your thoughts on sort of what's going on in the space right now? I think it's something that we talk about almost every day with across the board with all of our clients. I think the best way that we always describe it, it's become like the wild, wild west. Mm-hmm. It's putting your hat into the desert and praying that it rains and it pays off for you. And I think we have seen it happen firsthand. Um, you know, Aaron and myself, who unfortunately isn't with us right now, but uh, she's in Toronto holding down the fort in our office there. But um, we had uh, started a website back in 2011 with uh, two other partners um, called The Covetour. And it was really at sort of the forefront of influencer marketing. Mm-hmm. We always joke that we're probably those kids behind the scenes who are helping now the million plus follower people command six, seven figure checks Mm -hmm. because we gave them a platform really early on and identified them as the real influencers and tastemakers. And that was the purpose of the website. Put, you know, um, the spotlight on the real tastemakers of our generation. Who was actually, who are you looking to for style inspiration, home inspiration? Who are you looking to, to make shopping decisions? Mm -hmm. Who is really influencing your everyday? Um, And I think the idea of influencer marketing became this convoluted stock market crash type of thing right now where everyone realized, hey, I'm an influencer. I have a circle of friends. I'm My friends look at me. I'm a tastemaker. I'm a tastemaker. I have people, like my friends always ask me, oh, where did you get that watch? Or they've all realized I have a certain niche that I am uh, sit within. So, you know, I'm really into fitness and I love eating healthy and I love going to juice press. I'm going to align myself and be a fitfluencer. I'm really into beauty. I'm great at, at, you know, hacking the drugstore scene and making it look like I spent 10 hours and $10,000. I'm going to be a beauty influencer. And that mentality, I think, has so convoluted what we're working with right now because the pinnacle of what we are in right now today is this, um, you know, place where everyone is now commanding really, really high fees. And then brands are a, stuck with sticker shock of, whoa, how can this person possibly charge well, that much? Let's go back for a second because when the brands kind of got, I mean, influencer marketing is new, but it's not that new. I, I mean, agree. and sticker shock is sort of an interesting way that 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 brands are sort of se- seemingly reacting to this. I mean, yeah. don't they know that things are not cheap? I mean, this, these aren't the days of five years ago when you could just pay a kid somewhere in New York to, you know, a couple of grand and have him, you know, the do whatever rate. he wanted. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I'm surprised that the brands are still going through sticker shock. I think it's the idea of the new celebrity, okay. right? I think the idea of a girl who has 2 million followers is now 
the new celebrity who's commanding the same rate as a Jennifer Aniston, you know, um, Angelina Jolie, who probably did that, you know, five, 10 years ago. And it's the idea that these are real people and they're not on these Hollywood pedestals. They're not in Hollywood blockbusters. It's the girl next door who lives in your building, coincidentally, or it's a girl on a blog and by friend of a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, you somehow even have some sort of six degrees of separation connection to her or she went to a similar college as you. I think that notion of the new celebrity is really um, what's steering this. And it's also impacting the ways that agents for these types of new influencers are even contracting them. I think something really um, valuable that we even saw when we were concepting Metier was the notion of Metier even came from this place of there really was no traditional creative ad agency um, that existed that sort of understood how do you play both sides of the equation. Mm-hmm. We were influencers. We know them personally. We were in their closets digging through their drawers and we were the people commanding those fees. We had an agent. We had a really good understanding also of our audience and that was the biggest most important piece of our puzzle that made it the success Mm -hmm. personally i was the managing editor of the covetour so for me i ran the day-to-day i ran our social i was the voice behind the site i wrote it so i knew what people were saying so when brands were coming to us everyone from the chanel the cartier dior's down to the ann taylor's of the banana republics of the world we could say, this isn't going to resonate. I can tell you because I'm actually talking to these people. We knew our average price per purchase was really high. We knew our affiliate so you was had, really you high. You had data to basically say that whatever you were doing actually either worked or what wouldn't work. or And you were able to tell the brands that when they right. came to you. So as the influencer part, then to jump ship and go to an ad agency and be on the brand side, I personally you know, worked on everything from... Jimmy Choo and Louis Vuitton down to the Kmart fashions of the world. And Erin had her own clothing line. There was no one who understood the middle ground. How do you appease the laundry list that the brands have? And then the laundry list that the influencers have to justify why this person's commanding that much money and why this person will only pay you this much money. But then who's, okay, but then you can't really play both sides of the equation. I mean, whose interests are you going to look out for? At the end of the day, the influencer is the influencer and the brand is the client. And the brand's going to look for, as brands do, find every way to cut fees, whether it's with an agency or whether it's an influencer or a vendor, because that's what the brand needs to do because budgets are tight. And the influencers, obviously, this is their living. And they're also sort of at the zenith right now. I mean, they can do, they can command the fees they want. I mean, you stay, you're talking about really a lot of money here. It's hard to do both things. I mean, what is kind of the big thing that you think the brands don't get about the influencers? Yeah, I think for us, obviously our loyalty always is to our clients, which is the brand. I think we give them insight and rationale, which is the talent and the influencer. And I think we also have really strong personal relationships with a lot of influencers to understand that part of the, the conversation, which a lot of times brands prescribe too much and then the person doesn't have enough freedom to say, this is what's going to resonate. Um, but sorry, repeat your question. <laughs> That's okay. My question was, what don't brands get? What is the one thing that you're sort of constantly re-educating sure. brands about influencer marketing? I think the brands don't understand, A, that the people come with a very specific audience. Um, and so while you may like her photos, she may have an audience that only wants to see X price point 
or you may like her photos, but mainly her photo and you're a fashion brand and mainly her photos are food. And mm-hmm. so you shouldn't necessarily be working with her. So or, what happens when a brand, you know, okay, say, I mean, I've heard stories about, a, you know, an executive, a brand executive's like 16 year old daughter really loving somebody on Instagram. And therefore this brand now signing on these influencers for huge amounts yeah. of money and not knowing what you just said, yeah. not knowing audience, not knowing ROI, yeah. not knowing these things. So firstly, it seems like there's this like FOMO almost. Yeah. I mean, there's you don't want to There's a smoke and mirrors, I think, to a lot of it. I think, unfortunately, executives at the top really see inflated numbers because they're not you know, we always joke, we are the consumer. Like the brands that we work with want to work with us because we really are the, that buzzword millennial marketing that everyone's obsessed Mm -hmm. with right now. We are the millennials. We know what girls want. We know what girls want to buy. I think when you get a lot of, you know, outdated ad execs, a lot of them happen to be men at a lot of these big agencies. And, you know, we're fortunate our entire team is women and we're really proud to actually, you know, say that. Um, I think a lot of them see the surface level of it and they don't get to dive deep enough into see what is the engagement? What are people actually talking about within that post? Are they saying, I love your makeup. I love the way you did your hair. Or is it you're hot? Because a lot of times, and we've encountered this with a lot of brands is someone makes a decision to use um, an influencer as a big following, doesn't do enough homework. And while they think she's really pretty and she gets a lot of engagement, the hot girl usually has guys trolling her and not girls who want to buy the product. Uh, so, so, and so it's really nothing what the brand would want. Then I, I thought that, you know, the, the, the response from a lot of brands to this has been, okay, we won't go for the million plus. We will go for the micro influencers because we can, you know, a, it's easier to go through those comments, check the numbers, be able to kind of at least track what's happening. There are smaller followings or more targeted followings potentially. Right. Um, how, how has that been working out? I think what we always say is you need a mix. You need the top tier for mass eyeballs and then you need the people at the bottom who really are qualified. Um, And that was something, you know, we worked with Dior on the launch of a $400 anti-aging skincare product called Prestige, um, which launched in North America last year. It previous just been um, in Europe, I believe. And with a price point in this, you know, the realm of, La Mer, for example, the person who's going to, you know, use that type of product isn't the 19, 21 year old girl. Unless it's rich kids of Instagram. They'd use it. They probably would. There you go. (laughs) Because of influencer marketing. Right. Um, But I think, you know, Aaron and I looked at it from a place of there's the traditional approach that I think a lot of people take, which is let's do the bags bill. Let's do the get ready with me and I'll show you what product I put on. And just cast people who are check the box of beauty and check the box of getting a lot of engagement, let's say. And when we looked at the product, we were like, okay, we need a few things here. One is um, who is buying this product? What's the story behind the product? And what, how are we going to make the story distinct and unique to it being Dior versus being, you know, X other brand. Um, And I think that was a really good example of the mix of the mass influencer the qualified influencer, we partnered, um, we sort of deep dived into talking with Dior about it. And they told us this entire story about how the actual product is created with a rose um, that grows near Christian Dior's home called the Rose de Granville. And it has all these crazy regenerative qualities that kept outlasting every season. And they basically took that to the lab and were like, if it can do that, it should probably be able to do something to your skin. 
but the average consumer is not going to deep dive and find out it comes from a rose near Christian Dior's home. They probably don't really care. And then how do you make that cool? Because sure. at the end of the day, cool is what people get, mm-hmm. you know, pretty amped up about at the beginning. So we took that notion and we were also looked what was happening from a social trend perspective. And I think, you know, some of the brands that we love across the board from Glossier to Mansour Gavriel and even some of the apps that people were obsessed with, like Visco, were obsessed with that pink, Glossier pink. They've turned, they've coined it so well. And I think there's so many articles right now about the pastel pink movement. Um, so we were like, what if we tell the story of the rose through this pink lens? And what if we look at the platform of Instagram where the content's going to live and see if we can find micro influencers who tell a story within the context of that rose colored. And, and these could be across categories. Exactly. So Instagram has so many niche communities that a lot of people don't even realize exist. Mm-hmm. One of them what is this entire pastel community. Um, and all their content is so beautiful, but it's only created in tones of like light pinks and light blues and yellows. And it's just like so visually beautiful, but it's an aesthetic savvy, savvy audience. So we partnered these rose fluencers is what we called them with. Um, there's a name. That's ridiculous. That there's a name a, for everything. There's a name there? for everything. Rose fluencers. I was not going to go with rose fluencers. I had I was on board up until fit fluencers. I think rose fluencers is where you've lost me. <laughs> Um, and we partnered them with these really bigger named qualified, um, people who play in the beauty space. One of them being Chriselle Lim, who Mm -hmm. just got named blogger of the year. And, um, you know, she's a mom. She's someone who's thinking about anti-aging. She's on the go. You you do a bit of both. You don't, you can't do one. Okay. So you mentioned earlier sticker shock. How much do influencers cost? Give, give us a sense of. For, of the ask you may give to an influencer and what they might charge for it and what you get out of it. I think it's funny because it changes every single day and we'll put together a proposal for um, a program for one of our clients and we'll say X person will charge you 15000 for one Instagram and we'll go back to the agent and they'll say, oh, her fee is now 32000 And it's so this is fluctuating. Within the span of a month. Based on what? Um, based on other brands setting precedent. Based Are on, brands pushing it upward or downward? Absolutely up. I think the you have to think about it. The the bar rises and rises, and as soon as one other brand has set precedent, everyone else has to essentially follow suit. So you I know think, this is exactly like the mortgage crisis, right? That's why it's the stock market crash at its finest. Like I I think I've been saying we laugh about it, but um, we literally laugh, but it's not. It's the most real thing that everyone can relate to from a Wall Street perspective, except we know it from, you know, the girl in Australia who does beautiful food smoothie bowls, charging a lot of money to the YouTuber who is making videos. At the end of the day, I think it's a matter of content creation is this buzzword that everyone's become obsessed with and everyone's realized that they're a billboard. So if I can create content and I can be a billboard to get your message out, then you're going to have to pay me what that totally fair and I think and I and I do I do think that there are too many people right now in the industry who are poo-pooing almost this idea of like the beautiful smoothie bowl and I think that's a bad thing that this is an actual this is a business and actually what she's running and it's an art the smoothie girl like completely resonates for every single healthy food CPG but going back to the price bubble though because Mm -hmm. you know it is a bubble and eventually it will burst um 
so on one hand, the brands seem to be driving it upward because they're they're looking for the next big influencer that's going to give them the the big push that they need. Um, they're also looking for different types of influencers, so they're basically paying more, and the influencers right. are charging more. Yeah. Um, where does this all end? I think it's becoming interesting because the deliverables now are changing, and they don't necessarily correspond to what their fee is. So. While 30,000, let's say, may get you a few Instagram posts, a Snapchat story, an Instagram story takeover, it also might be the exact same fee as 30,000 might get you just an appearance fee at this point. By appearance fee, you mean I'm holding up the box of... No, appearance fee meaning like I'll show up to your event for an hour. To your store opening or whatever. Exactly. So it's very interesting because once one person charges it, it's very common that another one finds out, oh, well, I saw she charged an appearance fee plus an Instagram. I heard she charged this. I'm going to charge something similar. And I think for us, there was a really interesting benefit um, that we saw in terms of starting Metier, which was looking for a partner to help us play in the game the right way in terms of having a lot of insight as to how this marketplace with influencer marketing was shifting um, and our partner who invested um, in ne- uh, in Metier was Next Model Management, who has really been at the forefront of influencer marketing. They were the first to rep um, Kiara Varagni, the blonde salad. And, you know, she's someone who's definitely had unbelievable success in turning her name into a full-fledged brand that has so much power. And I think she's done an unbelievable job Um, But Next has really looked at these multi-hyphenates as you can be more than a pretty face. You can be a pretty face like a model and then also be a DJ, a director, a photographer, a singer, anything. Um, And I think for us, partnering with Next has helped us have be very 10 steps ahead for our clients to say, here's where it's going because this is how much these people are getting paid now. We should plan knowing that our program isn't happening for another year that these fees are only going to be X amount. How much do, do, do you know, talent networks for these influencers contribute to the problem? Because they're often the ones mm-hmm. negotiating a lot of these rates and they're often, they actually are playing both sides because, you know, their client is not really the brand and the influencer is giving them a cut. You know, they're basically yeah. a talent agency, but also a network and a brand can go to them and say, I'm looking for a mom blogger with, you know, a big following in the Midwest who really likes gluten-free recipes and they have that and then they'll negotiate an arrangement. How opaque is that whole process or I think, how transparent is it? Yeah, I don't think that it's as transparent as it probably should be. Because I think, again, I think it's kind of like playing poker. You kind of have to hide your cards because the brand doesn't know that X person may have only charged X amount on a previous thing. And now they're going to tell you it costs X amount. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a lot of mystery to it. Um, Because there's no benchmarks at all. Exactly. And it's not like every now and then an article comes out. Right. And every now and then an article comes out that says, you know, I think the most notable one that everyone will talk about is we were what says she charges 15,000 for an Instagram. And you can assume that prob- that number's probably increased since that article came out, you know, X many months ago. So I think that it's important, you know, with our place in the middle is to always, you know, prep the brands to give them 10 steps ahead perspective. And to do some research. Exactly. And do the research and, and like make them understand that this is happening across the board. Um, and then also work with the talent, though, to make them feel like what we always say is the we got you. 
fortunately, we have such good relationships from knowing a lot of the people personally to saying, hey, like X brand wants to work with you. What do you think? Is there a way that you would want to work with them in a more meaningful capacity? Because I think if you look at brands like Glossier and Way, what they've done is, and even things like Milk Makeup is activate a community who just wants to do things to get in on it because Mm -hmm. it's cool. And that to me is the future of our generation. I think we're moving so much more away from I'm a billboard pay for me to I just want to feel like I'm part of something. And I think our generation, especially with females, and I think, you know, we had an amazing conversation with Amanda Decadene and what she's doing with the Girl Gaze Project is, you know, the pinnacle of that. It's girls want to feel like they're part of something. And the consumers are only smarter. And I think girls are even more discerning as Mm -hmm. purchasers um, that they'll get on board. And, you know, people do so much stuff for way, for example, Mm -hmm. um, because they want to be part of this celebrity hairstyles movement who said, I'm not the celebrity. You guys are the people like, you know, it's not about I'm the celebrity hairstylist. I'm all for the the hairstylist in middle America who wants to be the next Mm -hmm. celebrity hairstylist. So we, we talked about Instagram a little bit earlier and how a lot of these things have been happening on Instagram what's, you know, where are beauty, uh, sorry, where are fashion brands and luxury brands and beauty brands to a little bit? Um, where are they at with Snapchat? Um, mm. It seems like a lot of people are talking about it as sort of the next Instagram. It's more authentic, you know, and every brand loves to trot around that word. So w- is Snapchat really about to become sort of the mainstream platform for yeah. these people? And what are the problems with it? I think it's funny because I think Snapchat was the safe space for kids whose parents couldn't go on Instagram and find them. And I think Snapchat was a safe place for kids because they were like, oh, the brands aren't going to find me here when I'm just chatting to my friends. Fast forward six months and now you're interrupted by watching your your friend's stories with an ad from Pepsi, let's say. Um, I think Snap, there's the big debate, which is Snapchat stories versus Instagram stories. Um, And I think it's too soon to tell, but I think Snapchat breaks the glossiness of Instagram in a way that feels really fun and cool because you know the most interesting thing isn't the picture that goes up but the 100 pictures that it took to get there yeah and i think the lack of sort of the gloss and breaking through that glossy um feel is something brands should want especially luxury brands that are for so long sat up on this pedestal yeah and it's it's time for them to become a little bit more human in that way and it's funny because i think a lot of the luxury brands look at Snapchat and they see someone, you know, coloring on the back behind the writing. They're like, whoa, 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 that's off brand for us. It's like, but that's on brand for the platform. So you either play within the means of the platform or just don't get on it at all because you have to adapt to the way that people are using technology. It can't just be, well, this is us and we're above it. Otherwise, you're not going to win at the game. How many of the problems with sort of uh, with, you know, how we talk about fashion brands are slow, fashion luxury brands are really slow. How much of that just comes down to adaptability that these that a lot of these brands just aren't willing to adapt? I think a lot of it is the time it takes internally for decisions to be made. Um, you know, I think a lot of these brands are so segregated internally where PR doesn't talk to marketing, doesn't talk to digital, doesn't talk, talk to North America doesn't talk to Paris. That internal infrastructure, I think, delays a lot of the problem that by the time a decision's made, so-and-so, their competitors already beat them to it. Um, And then I think there's a stubbornness in terms of um, how do we do it right? What's the best practice? Or 
I like how this brand did it, but I don't like how this brand do it. And let's try and do a copycat model as opposed to what's disruptive, what's loud, what's innovative, what's cool. And what are people going to be like, wow. Um, I think the pick and choosing of, of getting there slows people down um, as opposed to making mistakes along the way. And I think for luxury brands, they don't want to make the mistakes. They want it to seem as pristine and perfect as when you walk into the store as it does look on social. Uh, and when you go back to those internal issues, um, is, is that down to ego in many cases? Or what is really the explanation for having these things happen? Because I think on in non-fashion brands, there have been slow, but there have been more moves, mm-hmm. I feel, to try and get rid of silos, try and get rid of communication problems, try and get you know PR mm-hmm. setting with marketing more and digital and digital not being you know shunted off to a side so that you're not... you're you know, you're sitting there wondering what's, yeah. how many of your sales have come from digital and have people competing internally. Um, are fashion brands trying to change that or do they just not care enough? I think they're trying to, but I think that's why the emergence of brands like The Way, The Glossiers, The Everlanes and stuff like that are like, screw the rules. This is the new, this is the new playing field. I may come from a PR background, but now PR incorporates Marketing, digital, social, PR, long lead press, short lead press, whatever it is, I have to do it all. And I think that new mentality is why a lot of the luxury brands are getting not pushed to the wayside, but they aren't getting as much natural buzz and pickup and affinity as a lot of these smaller type of startup brands who have less at stake. They have less investors that they're risking against. They have you know, more opportunity to fail, you know, brands can fail within the first year Mm -hmm. a lot and it won't make that much impact because I think consumers are more forgiving. Um, Whereas a luxury brand, you want it in a pretty, a pretty box. So I think a lot of the reason why the luxury brands also seem like they've gone to take longer is because they're getting overshadowed by the new. The buzzy. And the buzzy and the cool and the risk taking and, you know, this like, it's as simple as like, oh, it's so innovative to um, do our fashion show only on Instagram, or it's so innovative to do uh, see now, buy now. It already happened, but like a smaller brand did it. So the bigger brand may have not seen it, but I think that's why, and consumers want to feel like I already saw that because mm-hmm. cool for a person comes down to being like, I already know that. I already like you want to be the one in your group of friends who's like did you see this oh yeah it was you like, want to be the first exactly um what do you think sort of other than that the biggest challenges are right now for some of the heritage or luxury legacy luxury brands in the space i think justifying price point for a lot of them is still tough price be- point of their products yeah i think price point is tough for people because again the small startup company that has direct to consumer who's eliminated all that kind of stuff can give it to you cheaper, faster, quicker, maybe not better. But that's a short-term fix. I mean, right. direct-to-consumer does have problems with scale, right. and that has happened across yeah. certain companies where once they get to that five-year mark, they're not going to be able to personally hand-deliver every single yeah. you know T-shirt you've ever bought. Yeah, I th- but I think there's something to the idea of attainable luxury that people don't feel like they need the necessarily Birkin bag. They can get something at... Maybe it's a Saint Laurent price point, or maybe it's something that's Mansour Gabrielle price point. Which is why Mansour Gabrielle is, I think, taken over in that really, exactly. in a very smart way. I- agreed. And I think 
people just want to feel like they have a piece that they can participate in what feels like an aspirational world. And I feel like, you know, we wax poetic about Jed Akin, but I think she really has such a good grasp on this idea that girls just want to feel like when they go into their shower, they have this fancy bottle that looks like some magic potion that would be in some Upper East Side woman's bathroom that they couldn't have. But all of a sudden, they feel like they're holding a piece of Balmain like on the, in their bathroom. And, you know, they curate their top shelf vanity based on what they want to show that makes them look a certain way versus, you know, the Jergens might be under the sink, but the diptyque bottle is on display. And then they're going to Instagram the hell out of it. Exactly. And I think, I think our generation lives in smoke and mirrors. So when it comes down to it, if you can have something that looks expensive and it costs a fraction of the price, you're going to relish in the fact that you made yourself look a certain way because we literally live these hyper curated personas. You're making me feel very depressed about our generation. I, I know. have to say, I feel that way too. Do you, I wish we had more substance. I know. I think we just we've grew up in an internet age, right? We've grown up with MySpace and Facebook, and one by one, each social network has made us rethink the persona we live online. So. Phones have made us only more isolated. We are, you know, we're doing so much exploration right now with VR. That's like our big thing that we're obsessed with at the moment. And that's only going to make people necessarily isolated more, but there's social components to it. But anything that's happening from a social perspective gives you the, the mm-hmm. power to curate. So I don't need to buy the Birkin. I can walk into Hermes, take a photo of a Birkin and say, new purchase. Or I can rent the Birkin. Or, or you I, can rent it. Which is sort or of... Or you can get it resale at a lower right. fraction of a cost. Again, no one knows where it needs to come from, but that's, the, to me, the barrier of luxury and all the things that come before to even necessarily buy it from that luxury retailer even. And on that note, somewhat morbid, but somewhat uplifting. Uh, that's all the time we have today for the Glossy Podcast. Thank you so much, Stacey Brockman, for Thank coming you. onto the show. So and fun. thanks to you for listening. We're on iTunes. We're also on Stitcher. And we'll be back next week with more.